I'm Joy Foley, and I'm your host for this episode of the Leading from the Inside Out podcast. Earlier this year, Rockwood partnered with the Charles and Lynn Schusterman Family Foundation to release Empower, Change, Transform, a free guide about building successful leadership development programs. My guests on this episode happen to know a lot about that work. Abby Saloma is Director of Leadership and Talent for the Schusterman Family Foundation. Sharon Price is Rockwood's Director of Strategic Initiatives, and Neil Spears is Executive Director of the Silver Lake Independent Jewish Community Center and an alum of both Rockwood's Art of Leadership and the Schusterman Fellowship. Thank you all for being here. How are you all? Doing all right. Thanks for having us. One of the tips we give in the guide is we offer a couple unconventional icebreakers that can be used to build trust. So I thought we would start with one of those to kick off our conversation. If you really knew me, you would know, dot, dot, dot. So Sharon, would you like to go first? If you really knew me, I'm going to say two things. You know, one, that 11.05 a.m. is still early, bright and early morning for me. <laughs> and um, the other one is, if you really knew me, you'd know that I actually do love my job um, nine years later as much as I did on the first day. Wow. Mm. I'll go. Um, if you really knew me, you would know that both of my parents were public school teachers for 35 years, and they actually used my grandmother's address to send me to a very large inner city public school. They believed that my best education would come not necessarily just from books, but um, more importantly, from being surrounded by people who did not look like me. Neil? If you really knew me, you would know that I am obsessed with airplanes and airlines and aviation. And I subscribe to all the nerdiest YouTube channels about these subjects. And if you take me to the airport, I could tell you what all the airplanes are. Nice. Thank you, Neil. (laughs) Neil, we should talk. I'm afraid to fly. Okay, great. (laughs) Okay, great. Thank you so much. So, Abby, that opening question came from Schusterman's curriculum. Can you share more about the Schusterman Fellowship and how that question fits in? So we launched the fellowship five years ago to uh, address what we call uh, a talent gap in the Jewish sector. Um, We think that there's incredible, incredible talent, uh, but we need to do a better job recruiting, developing, and creating cultures that retain that talent. And it's really based upon this notion that as human beings, no two leaders are alike. So I always say that there are lots of one size fits all hard skills based approaches to leadership development out there. And we are not one of them that we start first with leading self and then move to leading others and then to leading system. The other thing that I'll say about the program is because of this notion that as human beings, no two leaders are alike, it's highly customized. So every fellow is on their own personal journey. They receive a stipend of funds that they can use to pursue leadership opportunities that are aligned with their goals. Many of our fellows pursue leadership development in um, the area of mindful leadership or embodied leadership. We have had fellows who use their stipend to do things that have for their entire lives brought a great sense of fear. And um, they've used their stipend to do things that help them break through that fear, like going on a winter camping expedition or taking a very, very long walk where they're um, 
you know, stopping at points to really reflect on their own leadership journey and, and um, how to fully maximize their leadership potential. So it's a, it's a highly customized experience, um, but that doesn't mean that it's not also a collective experience. There's also a really rich cohort-based experience as well, which I'd be happy to share as we continue to talk. So Sharon, I heard a lot of parallels and a lot of differences in what Abby shared. Do you, do you see any places where our, our work um, touches or is, is related? So much of the core principles about starting with self and, and, and an inner journey is, is so much of what Rockwood's theory and methodology is as well. But in terms of our fellowship model, I think one way to understand it is that you know, overall, what Rockwood is up to is leadership, um, transformative leadership development. I think what's what's really interesting is this piece around the customized fellowship, um, just how customized it is. I think that um, Rockwood's model is definitely like 24 folks going through something together. So brass tacks, people come together for like a week of training and they'll have coaching and support and practices in between and then come back for another week of training and again, like coaches support in between and then maybe a third training. Um, and of course, it's customized in that like folks take whatever lessons they're learning and kind of bring it into their life. But the component that you all have, Abby, which is really interesting, um, is this extra stipend and just how open it is um, and how folks can kind of like follow whatever it is that they're learning on their journey and take it with them. Now I wanted to ask you, Neil, just a couple of questions about your personal experience because you're you're looking at these from the the other side as a as a participant and alum of these programs. What made you focus on leadership development? I think a couple of things that are really resonating with me, are, are, like Abby, you mentioned, you know, and so did you, Sharon. Like this idea of starting with self. Like I really leveraged both experiences, uh, both both Schusterman and and Rockwood to go deeper with myself. One of the ways that I used the my customized leadership funding was to do art of leadership through Rockwood. So I get to see both sides. Wow, so meta. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I did. I did a, a somatic leadership training through Strozzi Institute. I did a, a, a six-day meditation retreat that was silent, but I didn't know it was silent until I got there. That was intense. <laughs> <laughs> and what happened for me in, in that process was I start, started to see myself differently. I started to see my own leadership potential differently. Um, I, I think of like the metaphor of like a sculptor, um, you know, hewing out a stone to make the, 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 the statue, the masterpiece come alive. I feel like that's what's happening for me in both the Schusterman Fellowship and through Rockwell. So we've talked a little bit about these trainings that are, or that people have taken that are individual or ways that they've individually kind of looked at their leadership, taking um, sort of like a walking meditation, Abby, you mentioned, and then Neil, you mentioned a couple did like going to um, the meditate, the silent med surprise, silent meditation retreat. <laughs> you can do those things individually. Why learn leadership in a, in a group and a cohort model? Maybe Neil. <laughs> I'll say that there are things I learned from my peers in my cohort that I never would have learned from a trainer or never would have, maybe I would have heard it from a trainer, but it wouldn't have sunk in the same way in a trainer that were incredibly valuable. There's also something that there's a sustained relationship in a cohort that transcends what I could, a relationship I could have with, uh, you know, somebody who's training me on a particular skill. And so that allows 
the learning to continue to evolve as I evolve because I'm in relationship with these other folks who, who have a shared experience. There's also some stuff that's really deep and personal that comes up. I think when, when, when a leadership fellowship is doing it right and there's the right vulnerability and there's the right relationship uh, building, it, it, it can get really real. Like people knew about my mom's health problems in a way that I never didn't share with anybody else. Even recently on a Schusterman senior fellows reunion call, I shared stuff about myself that like, I, I haven't told anybody else. And there's just, um, there's an intimacy there that is, that allows us to get uh, really deep, really fast. There also aren't a lot of spaces for leaders to be that vulnerable with each other. This like, you know, the throwaway phase, it's, 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 it's lonely at the top. I mean, there are a lot of places that are, are the top. I feel like every leader is at the top of something. It is, it's lonely. And there aren't that many folks who really get it, who I can talk to and empathize with and get ideas from. Those, none of that happens without a cohort. Yeah, I'll add a few things to that. And I mean, the first point is leadership doesn't happen in a vacuum, right? So what we're trying to do is create a fellowship cohort that can serve as a laboratory, if you will, or kind of a microcosm for what happens out there in your teams and in your organization. And, you know, I mentioned this before, but our belief is that as human beings, no two leaders are alike. So every fellow is bringing their own strengths and growth edges and fears and failures and values. And sometimes they're really aligned with people in the room and sometimes they're misaligned. Mm -hmm. And that misalignment for us, um, there's real value in that, right? Like that can create some productive discomfort that I think can really push and challenge people in positive ways. Now that can also push and challenge people in, in not so positive ways, but we're, we're looking for fellows to learn from and with their fellow fellows and be pushed and challenged by their peers and also to push and challenge um, their peers and to hold up a mirror, like to help their colleagues see what they're not seeing themselves. Yeah. I'll just add two like examples of that from, from the Schusterman Fellowship. I remember in our, and I was in the first cohort, in our very first gathering of our first cohort, there was a huge conversation about gendered bathrooms and whether or not we needed to have gendered bathrooms in, in the space we were. And this, it's a great example of like the learning that happened around that in the cohort and the productive discomfort, mm -hmm. so helpful. And then at our first senior fellows gathering two years ago, we did it in, in Jerusalem and the space that was created for real conversation around Israel and Palestine, again, like conversations in a cohort that never would have been, that are, in my experience, were not possible in other spaces. Um, so yeah, that, that, this idea, Abby, of like the productive discomfort in a cohort and pushing each other, definitely a reason to have a cohort model couple more things. We mentioned equity and diversity in communities. And one of the things I'm most grateful for about working at Rockwood is how Rockwood has intentionally centered leaders of color and investing in leaders of color as a key race equity strategy. So there's a couple of things. I mean, now we're realizing that we need to go even further, further than that because of what movement leaders, what it requires to be in movement leadership right now. And what it means to build liberated spaces is it's more than just not just, but it, it, is, it is more than training leaders of color. But even that, that, that step, what I've seen in our rooms is that when folks show up and see other, see a room full, let's say there's 24, you know, see a, di a diverse group of people, that's majority people of color. Um, there's something that happens about seeing yourself in a space when, when you might have been the only person of color in X leadership space your whole life. 
and then you see these 23 other people and there's, there's, um, you know, there's like, there's a bond, there's a relaxation, and then there's just an, an inspiration that happens as well. Um, we've heard from a lot of people that also just being in those kinds of rooms, it's like it that they've never seen themselves as a leader before. And then and then learning with other people who are like them or even or even who aren't like them, but are represent diverse perspectives um, shows them all these other ways of being. And I think what's what's really interesting right now, since we're talking about the guide and the kinds of programs that people are creating, is that what I'm I am seeing a trend in funders and in folks who have. <clears throat> the positional and financial resources um, to make some of these programs go, um, that there is an interest um, and a desire to invest in affinity groups and social identity affinity groups in these different spaces. So like what you're talking about is programs for Jews of color. We've we've worked with several foundations on, you know, dedicated programs for black women in Georgia, on dedicated programs for Muslim, Arab, and South Asian women across the country, on dedicated programs for people of color and minorities in philanthropy. And so I think that, um, you know, as the country and our societies are waking up and bringing equity more in the center um, to all of our conversations, then like the folks who are getting trained or who are being invested in is shifting as well. And I think that the power of like seeing yourself um, in a group of others um, and building those those relationships um, in a new way can really propel this work forward. Sharon, that's so powerful. And actually, a few hours before our call today, I was going through our evaluation from our kickoff gathering of our fifth cohort. Yes. And one of the themes in that evaluation was just fellows expressing a sense of gratitude yeah. for the diverse cohort that has been built because they have not been in spaces, particularly in the Jewish community, where they have seen and felt that diversity. It's very powerful. I I, I felt that way too. I mean, the, the night before our first gathering, I remember asking you, Abby, okay, who are the other queers in this group, mm -hmm. right? I'm a, I'm a white cisgender gay man. I was like, who are, the, who are my people? Like, where are they? And And knowing that there were other folks who were like me, just made it so much more comfortable and easy and same at art of leadership, right? Like mm -hmm. uh, some of the same, the same thing, knowing that there were folks who shared my identity factors. I was like, Oh, I can be in a leadership role like this. I want to share just one more thing because I, I think, you know, we've spent a lot of time sharing about what's working about our programs. And I also think if we're going to walk our talk and actually like set the stage for vulnerability, we need to share what's not working. So I want to just reiterate that our, journey toward building a diverse cohort has been long and, and rocky and, and we are certainly moving in the direction of where we want to be and we still have a lot of work to do. The other thing that I want to share is we actually didn't do intentional identity work as part of the program in the first cohort that Neil was a part of. And now before we even focus on what we call creating the conditions to be like productive and inclusive and what some folks would call like the norms or agreement um, setting uh, process that often happens in, in cohorts. Now we do some identity work. So I just wanted to like share something that, you know, we've learned along the way because I hope it's helpful for folks in the field. Thank you. So I, I want to go back a little because well, I'm, I'm hearing a kind of theme to what everyone is sharing, but Neil, you were specifically talking about these conversations that 
the cohort that you were in, in the Schuster and Fellowship were able to have around things like gendered bathrooms that are important conversations, but are it, it didn't sound like that was necessarily a topic related to the cohort curriculum. It was something that came up. So why is it important to have a cohort that can have those conversations that can be vulnerable together? What usefulness is it to leadership to be very personal with a group of people? If, you know, you might not necessarily be that personal when you're like at work or something. Well, I think in our, in, in, in it's, in my fantasy, we are able to be that personal at work <laughs> when we're in the, in the business of shaping the world into something different than it is today. That's deeply personal. And that's deeply, that comes, that has to come from a very deep place inside. So practicing having those conversations with a trusted group of people sets the stage and makes it easier to have those conversations with folks who maybe are not as trusted or maybe where it does feel like going out on the limb a little more. I would say that, um, you know, any kind of, any kind of training in a group, it's like the training room becomes this microcosm of the world. And, and like that we show up that we show up in our habits is going to happen. So it's a great, like we had talked about like learning lab, you know, you step in and despite, and with all of our great intentions, you know, we step on something or we make the same mistakes that we do, the same things that we cannot see about ourselves in the outside world as we do in the training room. And then you get to look at it with a sense of consciousness, with a sense of awareness, with people that are there to coach and help you. And with a place where it seems like I've been trying not to say this word safe space because one of our, our, our former president at Kaya was, and actually some other folks who work here, really talking about brave space as opposed to safe space. But so it's like you're in a brave space where people can support you in a way and you're open enough to hear that feedback about what I might have done that um, was less skillful and how can I shift in that? So these little like microcosms in the training room, it's kind of amazing that we all, we all just like show up how we show up and we get to look at it when we're together. I just wanted to add one thing to what Sharon just said for any listeners who are interested in an amazing, amazing poem about Brave Space by Mickey Scott Bay Jones, who uh, is known as a justice doula. And this poem is, it's really, really powerful if what you're trying to do is, is create Brave Space. What's that, What's the poem called, Abby? Invitation to Brave Space. Invitation to Brave Space. New required or, or, or offered pre-reading for Rockwood Fellowships. <laughs> and, and actually, in, in the spirit of like sharing, you know, icebreakers with the world, which, which we've done as part of the release of this guide, we had this poem on a screen at the end of our agreement uh, setting process. Again, we don't call that it, that. We call it creating our conditions but or creating our space. But one of our fellows said, actually, I've been a part of groups where we've read this together. And you can kind of, you know, say whatever lines are resonating with you and kind of come in and come out of this unified reading of this poem. And it was really, really powerful because the words are really powerful. And it was also a powerful moment for a fellow to kind of stand up and lead and say, hey, I think we should do it differently. That's awesome. So how, so someone, someone reads the guide, they listen to this podcast, maybe they chat with Schusterman and Rockwood and they kind of get an idea they're going to do um, a fellowship. How would they even know that their fellowship is working, works, transformed people or helped them be better leaders? How would they know that? Well, you know, we've been in 
constant, we're in constant communication with our fellows about what's working and what's not from day one. So we have informal evaluations that we create um, and we send after every gathering. Now we also have an online learning series. So we have a quick feedback loop after our online learning modules. We also work in partnership with a learning and evaluation partner. And I just want to name, I mean, we're a foundation and there's a, there's a major expense that comes with that. And you don't have to do that. You can simply be in conversation with the people that you are offering the fellowship to and, and ask them what's working, what's not, and approach that conversation with a sense of vulnerability. Like if you're going to ask the question, you need to be open to hearing what's not working and open to making pivots along the way. We had this conversation a lot about like, what does it mean when somebody's transformed or how do we know that somebody's transformed? And there's a thousand ways to answer it, but I think at the core of it, it's like, if the person says that they're transformed, then they're transformed. You know, like the standard is set by each person. So exactly what you said, Abby, it's like we're in conversation through data, um, you know, know, through surveys, through individual calls, through checking in with folks. And then, like you said, you know, to be real about it, when we have gotten significant funding from foundations to invest in third-party evaluations, you know, which are expensive. They're upwards of at least, they started $100,000. And so that's a, that's a major expense. That's bigger than some grassroots organizations like yearly budget. So we can, we can go in depth and we can, when we're fortunate enough to have that kind of investment, do that kind of um, third-party evaluation. And I love your shortcut, Abby. It's like, you could also just talk to people. Yeah. <laughs> I want to um, just share a very quick story. Yesterday, I was um, talking with a CEO of a major Jewish organization, American Jewish World Service. And he is connected with and, and knows several of our fellows. And he shared with me the noticeable difference that he has seen in several of our fellows leadership and how they are, in this case, he was talking about two fellows who identify as female and how they are stepping into their power in ways that he hasn't seen before. So it's also, I think, really helpful to, it's of course helpful to talk to the fellows directly. And it's also helpful to talk to the fellows Talk to people who are observing the fellows in a leadership role and just noticing what those differences are in their leadership. I want to offer a way not to measure it, not to measure success. You know, Abby, you set up that like the, the Schusterman Fellowship is, was, is, was partly born out of an idea of, of like creating a stronger talent pipeline in the Jewish sector, um, which then would mean like, oh, well, then let's measure our success by like the number of people who are moving into these kinds of jobs in these kinds of organizations. And I really love that that doesn't seem to be the maybe primary way of measuring success. I know for me, these these leadership fellowships, they have a long-term effect. And uh, it wasn't for three-ish years after the fellowship that I took on this current role. But that wasn't the point, right? The point was the internal transformation, the the, the capacity building in myself, the the setting the stage for, for my own leadership to really blossom. So I say that because as a nonprofit leader, I also know how, how, how tempting it is to like find like really clearly measurable, you know, pieces of data that we can share back to our funders and say, look, it's working, but it has to be the right stuff. I really appreciate what Neil just said. And we operate, I think we operate at our best when we're operating in a both and space. Yeah. We do both. I mean, we are looking at the leadership trajectory of our fellows and are they ascending into senior roles? Are there, are there the roles and responsibilities increasing? Are they, you know, leading at a higher level? And 
we are seeing, I mean, since the, the start of the fellowship, 43% of our fellows have stepped into senior executive roles. So I do think it's a, it's a, both, a both and. Which is more important for leaders today? Emotional work like practicing vulnerability or technical work like learning how to balance a budget or write grants or those sorts of things? I mean, I, I'll start. I, I think that it's the emotional work that's by far the most important. The technical stuff can all be learned. Um, I mean, I, th- I, think, I think it's just, there's, there's, there's stuff you can just learn, right? Like I can learn how to read a cash flow sheet. I can learn how to like um, do a maternity leave that's in line with California law. Like those are technical things that I can learn pretty straightforwardly. The emotional stuff is so much more complicated um, because it butts up against all of my past life experiences, all the things that are sticky for me um, and that come up in my leadership. So um, dealing with the emotional barrage of people, especially working in, in a sector that is like our product is mostly people and social change, which is, which is, which is messy. It's not as, as straightforward as making a product. Our product is people and, and social change. Um, that's, that just, that you're, it's a constant barrage of everybody else's emotional stuff. I mean, when I first uh, um, took on this role about a year ago at the Silver Lake Independent Church Community Center, having a solid emotional foundation for myself was so much more important for my sustained leadership here than any technical skill, like any technical skill by far. Partly because people want to know their leaders as people um, and people are looking for the leaders who are emotionally um, in touch with themselves, can be vulnerable in the right ways, and can be and can lead from a place of real authenticity. Real authenticity. You gotta you gotta do the emotional work in order to let that part of leadership shine through with confidence. Yeah, for us at the Schusterman Fellowship, I mean, emotional intelligence is almost the entire game. Um, it's why we put that as the second recommendation in our guide. You really. Um, you really need to focus on emotional intelligence in these programs if, if you want to do the work of, of transformation. Um, I always like to use the example of fundraising, right? So if you are um, if you are focused solely on your fundraising technical skills, like how to um, uh, build a, a list of potential donors and, and the technical skills of asking for a gift and following up after you've asked for a gift. If, that, if that's what you're focused on and you're not able to deeply listen to a potential donor, if you're not able to build a, an authentic connection with a potential donor, then it, it, you're not going to be successful. So the hard skills, um, like Neil said, can be learned and they're secondary. But what's foundational is the emotional intelligence. I think what I would add to that is um, we get this question a lot too um, when developing, when either when people come to us asking what they should put in their fellowship program um, or you know, folks like Neil who are asking about, well, why would I come? <clears throat> and the, there's like two ways we talk about it. One is that um, the distinction between leadership and management. Um, and, you know, there's tons of awesome, like Stanford Social Innovation Review articles about this stuff. Um, but I think the way that I 
can, um, one way I've heard our trainers talk about it is that, um, let's see if I can get this one. Um, that management is the ability to um, manage systems and complexity, and that leadership is the ability to manage to to be with change. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that actually, and, and again, I do agree that um, Rockwood and Schusterman Fellowships are focused on the leadership aspect, manage change, be with yourself, be with others, all those skills, and that um, leadership and management are complementary. Um, so for example, like there's this awesome um, group called the Management Center um, that does a really great like one day and two day trainings called like Managing to Change the World. So we send every one of our staff members through that training, whether they're a manager or they're not a manager. Um, Cause I think it's this amazing complimentary program to the emotional aspects of what leadership is. So like these brass tack skills that often that, especially folks in our sector don't learn. You know, just things like how to supervise somebody, like what, like what does a supervisor check-in look like? Um, how do you make like clear requests of other people? How do you, how do you manage your own workload? Um, so I think that, uh, you know, I think while some of our fellowship programs, because they're 18 days of training over a year, might touch on some of those pieces, that um, kind of like what Neil was talking about, that you can, depending on what your interests and experiences, you can kind of like put together the training that you might need at any given point in your life. Um, and both those pieces are, um, can be complementary. I want to add just one more thing to this yeah. conversation. And that is, you know, we are um, working with leaders who are creating social change and they are doing that in a very, very complex world. And um, we talk a lot in the fellowship about, the four realms of leadership, what it means to lead spiritually, emotionally, physically, and mentally. And um, without that um, foundation, those those four realms, this work is not going to be sustainable. So that's another reason why it's so important to focus first on on the inner leader, um, to prepare them to do work in the times in which we're living and to make that work sustainable. Thank you. So we are coming close to time. So I want to thank you all so much for joining in this conversation. And I think to close, if you had only one piece of advice to give to a funder or organization looking to start a leadership development program, what would it be? I would say there are incredible models out there. I will tell you that over five years ago, when we were developing our program, Rockwood was a model for us. I mean, we looked closely at your program, the elements of the program, how you talked about the program, your approach, and we didn't reinvent the wheel. We built upon what you were doing and applied it to our own sector. So look out there in the world and borrow from what's working. Um, We're an open book with our materials and our learning. Our evaluations are online. We've put out this guide because we want to help build the entire field of leadership development. That is the way that we are going to create change in our world. I would say, I, I really think it's focusing on the curation of the cohort and putting first somebody's readiness, willingness, and openness to um, engage in this kind of leadership development. 
Yeah, my my advice was going to be similar, that it matters a lot less the exact curriculum or the exact sessions you put in. What matters much more is who's in the room getting the right group of open, diverse people in the room and setting the stage for them to build relationships and connect with each other on a very deep level and be vulnerable. Um, those things matter so much more than the exact topics of every single session. Nice. Well, thank you all. I don't want it to take us over time. Um, so thank you so much, everyone. Awesome. All right. Thanks, everybody. So great thank to you. Be with you all. Thank you. Nice okay. to see you again. Bye. Bye. And that's it for this episode of Rockwood's Leading from the Inside Out podcast. If you enjoyed this episode and want to learn more about building leadership development programs, download the free guide at rockwoodleadership.org slash leadership guide. From all of us here at Rockwood, we wish you joyful leadership. Leadership.